So, very welcome to this uh, public lecture in, in the uh, Philip Roman Chair in, in History and International Affairs at LCIDs. I'm uh, Eric Berghoff. I'm the director of the Institute of Global Affairs. I'm an economist. I've been um, tasked with building this Institute of Global Affairs where LSE Ideas is, is, is one of the constituent centers. And I'm very excited to, to be able to chair this session. It's a, it's a speaker who has an ability to range over time, and like, I think basically no, no other historian that I know of at least. And, and um, he gives this idea of the long run a completely new meaning. And, you know, we, we talk in, in economics of long run, you know, it's when, you know, prices can move freely or, or practice of production can be changed and so on. And we talk sometimes about the very long run when policies can change or, or where, you know, um, even, you know, um, governments can change. But, but uh, you know, what, what Ian is looking at is something so much longer. So, so his series, this is part of a series that... Um, it was the last lecture in the series of, of four. Uh, it's part of a, a program that uh, ideas have been running for a long time. Uh, the Philip Roman chair, as I mentioned, as a lot of uh, very prominent historians before Ian, but um, uh, Ian is very much part of, a, of that uh, crowd. We, this, uh, the funding of this chair was... Uh, provided by uh, Emmanuel or, or Manny Roman. I understand he's not here tonight, unfortunately, but uh, his uh, very generous uh, contribution is, is, is much appreciated. So, so, as I said, this is part of a, a four, uh, uh, four lectures, and this one has... Um, each age gets the inequality it needs, 20,000 years of, of, of hierarchy. So I, we, we are all eager to uh, learn more about this. Yes, let me say a few words about uh, Professor Ian Morris. So, as, as, as you know, uh, and that's probably why you're here, that he you know, is a very much uh, renowned um, and award-winning author. He studies these long-term trends in history, and uh, he does digs, actually. We have discussed a number of digs that he has been part of, uh, you know, in, in different parts of the world, and, and uh, you know, uh, that's the ultimate, I guess, empirical... Um, uh, exercise, but uh, not many economists get to do uh, do that. But but uh, he has he has managed to to range from from uh, digging in the ground to to um, to uh, drawing uh, very ex exciting and and, and um, far-reaching um, uh, conclusions about the long-term trends in in in, uh, in history. Uh, he uh, has a doctorate from, from Cambridge. He has held position at, at University of Chicago and, and in Cambridge. He has a number of uh, research awards, uh, very uh, prestigious Guggenheim and Andrew Carnegie fellowships. He's uh, part of the British Academy, fellow of the British Academy, many other things as well. He has a book that I understand you will be willing to sign, or at least that's what I'm told, uh, Foragers, Farmers, and Fossil Fuels. He likes alliterations, how human value evolved. And um, this lecture, I don't know if it's related to the book, but uh, the floor is yours. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. 
Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you, Eric, for that very kind uh, introduction. And let's see if I've struggled my bits of paper here. Um, and so, well, this is the, the final talk in the series that I'm doing at the LSE. Uh, it's been a... I just want to... Um, <laughs> yeah, a, a, a little too much organization here for me. So yeah, the final talk in the series I'm doing here at the LSE. I've been having a wonderful time this year, and uh, I'd like to thank Eric for that introduction, um, and uh, thank Mick Cox, uh, who is the director of the Ideas Program, and thank Amelia Knight and Bastian Bosma, who've been looking after me so well and stopping me from getting lost and all kinds of good things, and Manny Roman, um, who has made the whole thing possible, and the students who've been taking the, the seminar with me, and of course, um, all of you for showing up tonight. Um, thank you very much. Um, everyone has been very kind to me and uh, very patient with my, the strange ways I behave. I've been having a tremendous time all year. Um, I've been able to, to come here to London and rent these little flats through Airbnb and live like right in the middle of like Covent Garden and stuff and stroll to the LSE. And it's been a real sort of culture shock experience. It's like living like a Russian oligarch, uh, which I've been uh, enjoying enormously. But tonight, what I want to do tonight um, is uh, find the control thing first. What I want to do tonight is talk really about another episode of Culture Shock that I had many, many years ago, back in 1982. Let's, let's get, here's my first picture, my title slide. Um, back in 1982, when I first started digging as an archaeologist in Greece, um, I was digging the, the first project I went on in Greece, a little place called Assyros. Here it is, a little town up in the, the northern part of Greece. Um, and working on this project, a prehistoric site, and we would... You'd go off and dig stuff up all day, and then you'd come home, and in the afternoons, you would sit at the dig house and wash little bits of broken pottery and count and weigh them and put them in plastic bags and all the other incredibly meaningful things you do in archaeology. And then in the evening, you know, the sun would start to go down, and we'd all sit down in the dusty front yard of the dig house with a glass of ouzo to watch the sun go down and discuss our exciting day. Well, one, one evening, near the start of the project, we're sitting there having a drink, and down the road um, comes this, this cup. This is actually not them. Um, as you'll see over the bottom there, it actually says discover Lebanon on the slide on the right. But it's close enough to what we saw coming down the road. Um, elderly couple, there's a guy, old guy sitting on a donkey who actually was tapping the donkey with a stick as he went along. And next to him is this little old lady bent over double on foot carrying a gigantic sack on her back stuffed with some kind of agricultural product. Anyway, so they're coming past the dig house. And at this point, I spoke about three words of modern Greek. So uh, I'm just sitting there. But one of our group goes up and starts talking to them. They exchange a few words and lots of nodding and laughing. And the little party goes on. And he comes back and, and sits down again. So we say, well, what did you say? So he said, oh, well, OK, well, that was Mr. George. And then he goes silent. He said, well, we said, what did you say? And he said, well, I said, how, how are you doing, Mr. George? And he said, I'm doing well. And then he stopped again. So he said, uh, and? And then I asked him, why isn't your wife on a donkey? And uh, again, he then stopped. He said, well, well. He said, well, Mr. George says she doesn't have one. <laughs> and uh, we all just said, this was the most peculiar story. I mean, back in, back in Birmingham, where we had just come from as a student at Birmingham University, back in Birmingham, you know, th this was not done. You know, little old guys did not sit on donkeys while their wives walked beside them carrying huge sacks. It was just not done. It was really my first experience of you know, the classic anthropological thing of culture shock. 
And basically what I want to talk about tonight is a book that I wrote that came out last year, which was really an attempt to kind of explain what I saw back in Asiros, you know, a third of a century ago. Basically, that is really what the whole thing is about. And the plan, what I'm going to do this evening, four things I want to talk about. Um, first, I want to talk about the nature of hierarchy, um, of sort of inequality in society. What, what is this thing, hierarchy? And then, um, the reason for this, I hope, will become clear in just a moment. I'm going to be talking about foragers, farmers, and fossil fuels, which, as you will have noticed, the title of the book, For Sale at a Little Desk Just Outside. Um, foragers, farmers, and fossil fuels. Then, I'm going to talk about this idea, the, the core idea, the title uh, of my talk, that there, there is such a thing as a right amount of inequality for different societies. And then, finally, a few speculations about the shape of inequalities to come. So that's the basic plan um, for the evening. So um, hierarchy, this, what, what is hierarchy? Well, it seems to me there's sort of two main theories about where ideas about inequality and hierarchy come from. And one of them basically says um, our attitudes, our views of inequality and hierarchy and, and fairness, you know, what, what is fair in, in society, these are things that are hardwired into us. They're biological evolutionary adaptations. Um, and a lot of studies have been done on this. And um, a number of experiments have been attempted to find out, is there such a thing as a shared human value of fairness that all human beings share? Are there, is there a value of fairness that other species share? A lot of work's been done on this. And um, a lot of the experiments revolve around something that's been well established for many, many years now, which is that um, you can teach primates, you know, apes, uh, chimpanzees, um, gorillas, uh, monkeys. You can teach primates to perform simple tricks. And so, like, say, say you're a monkey, um, and I come up to you and give you a pebble. Uh, if you give me the pebble back, I now give you a tasty treat, like a piece of green pepper or something, which you like because you're a monkey. Uh, and you can learn very quickly that any time I give you a pebble, you give it back, you get the treat. So this has been known for a long time. But a few years ago, a researcher um, at the Yerkes Primate Center in, in Georgia, she came up with this very interesting idea. She thought, what would happen if, say now we got a couple of monkeys, um, and what would happen if I gave Bastian, the monkey in the front row, if I gave him one kind of treat, but then gave a different monkey a different treat for performing the same task. This is a basic idea. So she got down with a, a group of capuchin monkeys, um, and she tried this out on them. So the, the first monkey, she comes up to the first monkey, and she gives the first monkey a cherry tomato, a tomato for the natives, a cherry tomato to the first monkey. And monkeys love tomatoes. First monkey is incredibly excited, snarfs down his cherry tomato. Second monkey, second monkey gets a piece of green pepper which monkeys like, but nowhere near as much as a cherry tomato. And it's the same task, you know, get the pebble, give the pebble back. Why did the first monkey get paid better than me for performing the same task? And some of the monkeys, they would like, they would do a double take when they got the green, I would say, like, what? But then they'd eat it, you know, it's still green pepper. Some of the monkeys, they, they do the double take, they look at the green monkey and they drop it on the ground. And some would turn their back on her after they got the green, the, the, the green pepper. Some of the monkeys would get the green pepper and hurl it back in her face. Um, the monkeys were clearly saying, that is not fair. I did the same work, I should get the same pay as the first monkey. Angry, angry monkeys. So, conclusion um, that the experiment has reached. Um, humans have um, 
biologically evolved values like fairness, so do other animals, so do capuchin monkeys, so do chimpanzees. Fairness um, values are something that we've evolved. Uh, the, the more a species, more a particular animal evolves toward the equilibrium kind of values in its species, the better it's going to do, the more likely it is to transmit its genes. Um, values are hardwired into us. So this is the first theory. Second theory says, no, that is completely mistaken. And the people who push a second theory hard is this tends to be cultural anthropologists. And the anthropologists will often say, you, you visit different societies around the world, you find radically different kinds of values, often in very small spaces. So say, for example, you took yourself off not to a primate park, but to northern Tanzania. And you visited the Hadza hunter-gatherers, who you see up here at the top left. Hadza, among the Hadza hunter-gatherers, if you talk to a Hadza, a Hadza would tell you, um, it's fair, it's right and proper that a woman should be just as free as a man to find sexual partners. That, that's fair and right and proper. If you went 50 miles away to the Niamwezi, who you see on the bottom right, the Niamwezi would tell you this is anything but fair. Of course men will seek sexual partners wherever they find them. Women can never, ever do that. And it would be totally unfair to treat men and women the same way when it comes to, to, to sexual access. So the anthropologists will say, um, while differences from culture to culture, there's nothing hardwired about human values. Evolutionary biologists on the whole would say, no, evolution, um, human values are wired into us by our evolution. So, which is right? This is the basic question here. And the answer I'm going to suggest is that both are right, and also neither of them is right. Um, a, a little bit of both. But I'm also going to suggest that the consequences of thinking that both and neither are right are actually quite interesting. And as I've done in, in all of the lectures, if any of you have been um, foolish enough to come to other ones of them, um, I'm going to be suggesting that taking a long-term perspective on this question opens up entirely new aspects of it. And if you look across the entire world, across 20,000 years of history, um, you see that while the anthropologists are quite right that there is enormous variety in, in values in different cultures, at the same time, the evolutionists are right that the values can be clumped together into a, a very small number of, of big patterns. And I'm going to suggest, in fact, there are really three big patterns in human values and the evolution of human values I think we can speak of. So this is what this chart is about. And what we're looking at here in this chart, and across the top, we've got three categories of, of humans defined by the ways they capture energy from the world. Foragers. Foragers are people who live by hunting and gathering. They um, gather wild plants, hunt wild animals, um, generally capture very small amounts of energy from the world. Farmers. Farmers are people who live off domesticated energy sources. Domesticated plants and animals capture more energy from their society, from their context. Fossil fuel users are, well, um, as the name implies, are people who use fossil fuels, um, like ourselves, capture vastly more uh, energy from the environment. And what I'm going to suggest is, in fact, for all of the variety of human values, basically there are three broad patterns out there that correspond to these three ways of capturing energy from the environment. And um, this chart here, I'm actually not, uh, I talked in my last lecture about violence. I'm actually not going to be talking about the violence bit tonight. I forgot that it was on the chart before I put the chart in the slide collection. But I'm going to look at um, values just in terms of three values, which I think are particularly interesting, particularly informative ones. Attitudes about political inequality, 
attitudes about gender inequality, attitudes about wealth inequality. And within each of these broad categories, foragers, farmers, fossil fuels, you get um, nearly always a rather similar sets of attitudes about these three kinds of inequality. So on the whole, foragers tend to say all political inequality is bad, all wealth inequality is bad. Gender inequality is, it's sort of okay. Men are almost always in charge of women in forager societies, but the sort of gender inequality is very, very limited compared to a lot of other societies. So, I mean, okay, just a shorthand way of saying it's limited um, gender inequality they think is acceptable. Among farming societies, though, on the whole, they tend to say political inequality is good. It is right and it is proper. So is gender inequality. The, the gap between male and female in virtually all farming societies is enormous. Wealth inequality, this is also good. You might feel something went terribly wrong um, when God dealt out the cards and I should actually be richer than I am. But the idea that some people should be richer than others, this is almost always seen as right and proper in farming societies. Fossil fuel societies, on the whole, we tend to say um, political inequality is bad. A democracy has come to be seen as a sort of natural order of things in modern fossil fuel-powered societies. We tend to say gender inequality is bad. Wealth inequality is a little bit more complicated, and I'll have a bit more to say about that later on. Um, but uh, to some extent, people in uh, fossil fuel societies tend to say wealth inequality is bad as well. Now, there's a lot of variation within each these categories. I mean, these three columns, this subsumes all humans who ever lived. So there's obviously a lot of variation within each category, a lot of qualifications around the edges. Um, but th this pattern, I'm going to suggest that what this pattern means is that both of the, the two theories I mentioned are right up to a point. That there's core values are hardwired into humans, particularly the value of fairness. I think it's something that pretty much all human beings say fairness is important. Hardwired into humans, hardwired into primates as well, as the experiment showed. What varies, though, where the anthropologists are right, what varies is people's idea of what fairness means, the meaning of these core concepts. That can vary enormously. And the, the ultimate cause of the variations, I think, is the way we capture energy and the amount of energy we extract from the environment around us. Now, that probably sounds like an absolutely insane claim. Um, and you might be thinking, well, how does that work? I mean, does eating wild rice make you feel more egalitarian? Whereas eating processed cheese makes you feel hierarchical. Well, obviously, you can go home and test this for yourself, run your own experiment. But I can tell you right now, the answer is no. It seems to have no impact on me, at least how I feel. Is it that hunter-gatherers, foragers are by nature saintly people, whereas farmers, like you see at the bottom, farmers are all either bullies or doormats? Is it psychological like that? Again, obviously, the answer is no. You get all kinds of people in all kinds of societies. Um, the, the explanation, I, I think, the explanation is what social scientists would at one time have called a, a functionalist explanation. That everything is interlocked with everything else. That foraging, um, foraging works best with particular kinds of organizations of societies. And in societies organized in those ways, people who interpret fairness as meaning that everybody is more or less the same and you should treat everybody in more or less the same way, they tend to do better than people who don't interpret fairness as meaning that. Um, the result is that over thousands of years, the interpretation of fairness as being the same thing as equality, that has tended to drive out other interpretations of fairness. 
Farming societies, totally different. Um, different kinds of organization, um, which uh, leads to the result that people who interpret fairness as meaning everybody is different and you should treat everybody differently according to who they are. Those values do better than, the, than uh, for the people who think that fairness means you treat everybody the same. Result, of course, societies tend to move toward the idea that it's fair to be very hierarchical, to treat different kinds of people differently. Our own fossil fuel societies, of course, different again. Uh, each kind of society um, ha has overall structures which favor one or another interpretation of what fairness means. Okay, so a, a few words then about these different categories, the foragers, the farmers, the fossil fuels. Put a little flesh on the bones of what I just said. Um, now, talking about this, like, like I said, this covers basically all human beings who ever lived. Um, it means that the, there are all kinds of challenges and problems with the, the evidence available for thinking about these things. The evidence is very different for each group, always very problematic. For foragers, we've basically got 20th century anthropological accounts and then archaeology for prehistoric foragers. It presents all kinds of challenges. For farmers, basically everything that gets written down between about 3000 BC and AD 1800, comes out of a farming society. So we've got a lot of evidence, but the obvious problem, and overwhelmingly this, this written evidence is written by the elite men at the top of society. And not surprisingly, the elite men at the top of society say fairness means treating elite men better than everybody else. Not not huge surprise there. However, against that, we can balance that out a little bit with, um, again, with 20th century social science studies of farming societies, which give us a much broader perspective on what, what people think. With fossil fuel societies, the, the basic evidence problem is just that it's overwhelming. I mean, the quantities of evidence are overwhelming, so you now encounter a real selection problem. Which bits of evidence are we going to use most? Okay, the foragers. Well, what would I mean then talking about foragers? Foragers are people who support themselves of wild energy sources, wild plants, wild animals. Typically, um, they capture very small amounts of energy. It's about five to 10,000 kilocalories per person per day. And I'll come back in a minute to the significance of these numbers. Um, two to 3,000 of those kilocalories go as foods. The rest goes for everything else you do, fuel, housing, clothing, everything else that you do. And the, the numbers are going to be banding around. Um, these come from a book I published a couple of years ago called The Measure of Civilization. If you, uh, anybody wants to go and check my sources and refute everything that I've said. Um, the foragers then capture very small amounts of energy. They live off wild plants, wild animals. One of the consequences of living that way is that foragers almost always live in very, very small groups of people, often fewer than a dozen people, not unusual. Foragers move around constantly. They have extremely low population densities. Less than one person per square kilometre is normal. Less than one person per ten square kilometres is not unusual. Extremely low population densities. One result of this kind of social organization is it's very difficult to accumulate a lot of material wealth. I mean, like if you're wandering around constantly like these um, hunter-gatherers in Botswana, you know, even if you have the, the ability to make a grand piano, why would you do that when you're going to be moving next week? Um, you, you, you just, the problems obviously uh, compound very rapidly. Um, difficult to accumulate material wealth. Difficult also to create and sustain political hierarchy. Um, if you 
try to make yourself into a kind of Louis the Fourteenth of your foraging band. He was, if I were better with, um, with PowerPoint, I could like Photoshop Louis the Fourteenth into the scene. I don't know how to do that. So you have to make do with him at the end. But I mean, if you try to run a foraging band like Louis the Fourteenth's France, this is not going to work. Um, we know that because you know there are a lot of um, particularly young successful hunters in forager bands start thinking they're superior to everybody else, try to set themselves up above everybody else. Forager bands have many sociological techniques to bring them down. And the anthropologists call these guys upstarts. Um, foraging bands overwhelmingly say that this generalized equality that their societies create, this is good, this is right and proper, this is what fairness is all about. And um, you know, as always, of course, we're talking about most of human history here, there are exceptions to this rule. But the exceptions are, I think, very interesting exceptions. One of the best-known ones is the foraging societies of the Pacific Northwest, which flourished up till about 1900. Um, these were societies that were much bigger. Sometimes hundreds of people would live together, often stay in one place much of the year, um, often quite unequal societies. The Kwakutl here were known for their practices of slavery. There were a lot of slaves in Kwakutl society. But they lived in a very, very special niche, um, a maritime, very rich environment where, as a hunter-gatherer, you could capture easily 10,000, 15,000 kilocalories of energy per day. In those contexts of high energy capture, um, hunter-gatherer societies um, regularly move toward much more hierarchical forms and regularly say, yes, hierarchy is good. This is the natural way the world should work. Now, farmers, farmers, different kinds of people, different sorts of societies. They um, support themselves from domesticated um, sources of plants and animals. Um, they tend to be much more settled, staying in one place uh, permanently, usually. They build much bigger society, as much bigger cities. Cities of up to a million people are known from purely farming world. This is a picture of a famous um, model of the city of Rome that Mussolini had built in the 1930s. It's still on display in Rome. It's, it's an amazing thing, well worth seeing. But Rome Rome had a million people living there in the first century AD. Farmers, farming societies can capture anywhere between 10,000 and 35,000 kilocalories of energy per person each day. And here, this um, graph, what we got on the bottom axis, just foraging and farming societies. On the vertical axis, kilocalories of energy per person per day, the averages. And the vertical lines, these represent the band of documented levels of energy capture in foraging and farming society. Just, just to make the point that the farmers are capturing much more energy per person than the foragers. They do that, though, at the price of working much, much harder than foragers normally do, and also at the price of having to solve very complicated coordination problems. To, to build a farming society, there's all this stuff you've got to do that you don't have to do in foraging societies. Um, and basically, the further you move up the, the vertical, does this pointer work? Oh yeah, it does. The further a society moves up this line of energy capture, the more complicated the problems it has to solve become. The more that it solves the problem, the more it's able to move up the energy capture line. And so, say here, a few Roman examples, um, again, uh, that same model up there at the top. City of a million people. How do you feed a million people all in one place? Well, you import grain from all over the Mediterranean basin, which we see the shipwreck from Pisa, uh, from a parking lot in Pisa over there on the far right. Um, you bring in water, this is actually a picture from Tunisia, but you bring in water across miles and miles and miles away to, to keep your city going. Now, if 
you structure your society like a foraging band, and you say, we need an aqueduct to bring water to the city. I'm hoping my cousins and my brothers will show up and build the aqueduct with me. Not going to work. You've got to mobilize very large amounts of labor. There's many ways you can do this, but overwhelmingly, farming societies found that the most efficient, most effective way to mobilize labor was very much a top-down process, Um, very heavily relying on coercion. Pretty much every documented farming society has a significant element of forced labor going on in it. Slavery is a Roman picture again. Slavery, serfdom, um, almost unknown in foraging societies, overwhelmingly common in farming societies. And this, I think, is because... um, Coercion is the cheapest way, most effective way to mobilize large amounts of labor. Now, in these societies, not surprisingly, some people are able to accumulate enormous amounts of hierarchy. Here is one such, King Tutankhamun. Um, Lots and lots of gold in his tomb. Um, So much political hierarchy that overwhelmingly the people who wrote Egyptian literature agreed he was a god. He was so much superior to everybody else, he actually was a god. And these sorts of ideas absolutely normal in farming societies. Your kings are at least godlike. Enormous political and wealth inequality. And it's not just the kings. Um, there's one, one Roman guy who, there's nothing special about this guy. I mean, he's a very rich Roman, but he wasn't a special rich Roman or anything. A guy named El Caecilius Isidorus died in 8 BC. And I bring up um, El Caecilius Isidorus because his will happens to survive. We know what he left and when he died. He left 3,600 pairs of oxen in his will. He left 257,000 other animals in the will. 4,116 slaves, and then 60 million sesterces in cash. 60 million sesterces was roughly enough to support 500,000 people for a year. Now, this guy, he's a rich Roman. He's not one of the top guys. Um, the, the, The wealth inequalities are staggering. In farming societies, if you are a a Kung San hunter-gatherer, plucked out of modern uh, Botswana, dropped down in a farming society, you are not going to do well with the sort of attitudes you're likely to have from a foraging society. If you drop down into a medieval serf society, you're going to find this very, very difficult indeed. Now, again, there are at least partial exceptions, as with all of these cases. I mean, here, a couple of um, obvious ones. Classical Athens in Greece, um, uh, Renaissance Venice, city-states. Uh, city-states, again, a bit like the exceptions to the foraging rule. These commercial city-states tended to be maritime city-states that were unusually prosperous, importing large amounts of food, basically capturing much more energy per person than a normal farming society. They tended to have relatively broad-based, relatively egalitarian societies by farming standards. So again, say 17th, 18th century, Northwest Europe, another place that has a rather different from um, Athens and Venice, but again has these rather relatively egalitarian societies by the standards of farming societies. But having said that, we have to remember that by the standards most of us are used to, these were still intensely hierarchical places. Classical Athens, the birthplace of democracy, was also a place where one person in three was a slave, owned by someone else with almost no political, legal, economic rights. Half the population, obviously, was women. Um, Women had 
barely more political and economic rights than the slaves. Um, classical Athens, the home place of democracy, also saw one of the steepest gender hierarchies known to historians. And um, I often say with my students, I, I teach uh, ancient Greek history, I often say to them that you know, Athens is democratic and egalitarian if you think the United States South before the Civil War was democratic and egalitarian. Very, very similar sort of place. So um, the, the farming world just very, very different. And overwhelmingly, the evidence suggests people in farming societies think the natural order of things is a very hierarchical order. It's fair to be hierarchical. Okay, the fossil fuel world. Let's talk a bit about the fossil fuel world. This is my hometown, um, the centre of the fossil fuel world. Fossil fuel world, basically northwest Europe around 1800, it starts and spreads around the rest of the planet. Vast populations are created, um, enormous mobility uh, compared to the, the farming world, enormous cities. Here's Tokyo, 35 million people now live in Tokyo. Staggering level of energy capture compared to earlier societies. Um, here we are, uh, the, the two left-hand columns are the two we saw on the earlier slide, the foraging and the farming societies, energy capture on the vertical scale. Over on the right, you see the enormous range of fossil fuel societies. And basically, since 1800, um, Western societies have climbed up that whole range, up to 230,000 kilocalories per day. Like the foragers and the farmers, we need about two to 3,000 kilocalories a day to feed ourselves. We actually consume quite a bit more than that. Um, I have certainly been doing so the last few days while I've been in London. Um, but the vast bulk of what we consume goes to power airplanes to bring me here, electricity to show you slides, things like this, staggering levels of energy capture um, that we use. Um, the energy capture has transformed our societies, made them utterly unlike anything that's existed before in, in history. Now, one of the big questions that fossil fuel societies have to solve in the 19th and 20th centuries is how you organize these vast flows of energy that allow you to produce goods and services way beyond anything the world has ever seen before. And basically, two, two models came up of a, how to run a fossil fuel society. And I think you can think of particularly the 20th century as a struggle between these two models. One, the version you see on the top left, um, top-down, centralized way of running a fossil fuel society. You have five-year plans. You have a government telling factories what to produce. Very centralized, very top-down. Bottom right, which is the, the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange in 1963, um, very different vision. Uh, basically says it should be bottom up. You should leave people as free as possible to truck and barter. Adam Smith says, yeah, this is natural propensity of humans. Um, this will be the best way to run a fossil fuel society. A free market will set the prices. That's going to be the best way to do this. Both of these models, in their own way, e each of them is strongly opposed to hierarchy, but of course in different ways. And yet at the same time, well, in some ways they oppose hierarchy, in other ways they embrace hierarchy. Rather a complicated kind of world that we live in. By the 1990s, it seemed that the big winner uh, in the struggle between these different models. It seemed like the, the big winner um, was the, the model you see down on the bottom right. Um, you you liberalise, you open everything up as much as possible. Fossil fuel societies will work best with free market, free speech, free trade, free everything. And th this will make the societies work as well as possible because what you will then get, the theory runs, is you'll get a broad, prosperous middle class able to consume, able to pay for all the goods and services we can now produce because we have all this energy 
energy. But you'll also be able to have a really prosperous um, entrepreneurial class, sort of running the whole thing and taking the risks and having the ideas. And this will work out really, really well. And by the end of the 20th century, it seemed like you know, that model has decisively defeated the kind of Soviet fascist um, top-down models. Now, the last couple hundred years since the Industrial Revolution have seen the fastest transformations in hierarchy in the whole of history. I mean, the kind of welfare states we have now would just seem unimaginable in any earlier age. The democracies we have now, unimaginable. The religious tolerance that we have now, unimaginable. Um, the gender equality in particular, I think that is what's changed faster than anything has ever changed in history. Gender equality since 1945, unimaginable. Um, throughout all of history, but particularly in farming societies, men, uh, they've been patriarchal societies, men have dominated these societies. In the 1990s, the most powerful man in the world, Bill Clinton, was almost brought down over allegations, well not proved allegations, that he had sex with a, a young female intern in his office. Almost brought down the most powerful man in the world. A couple of years ago, um, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, in charge of the International Monetary Fund, a front-runner of the French presidency, was brought down over charges that he raped a hotel maid. Now, Roman emperors did not face this problem. Something has changed very dramatically in our world. Egalitarianism has triumphed in so many ways. This idea that fairness is about equality. Because having said that, we still have Bill Gates. And here are a few fun facts about Bill Gates um, scattered around on, on this slide, uh, which are not, not, not all of them entirely accurate. It's not strictly true that if he dropped a £100 note on the ground while he's lecturing, it would not be worth his time to stoop and pick it up. It still would be worth his time. It's just that he would be earning more in interest um, from his other sources of wealth than he would get by saving the £100. I mean, this is a man who well, tells you how much he earns every second, $250 every second. Um, globally today, the average human being earns $25 per day. He earns 10 times more per second than the average human earns per day. So something to bear in mind when we talk about modern egalitarianism. It's a complicated world that we live in. Um, now, okay, so well, if these sketches of the, the three different systems are right, I mean, how, how do we actually get to these outcomes? How, how does the whole thing work? Well, I, I think the, the way the process works is um, basically through a series of constant experiments and competitions. I mean, like I was saying, eating wild food doesn't make you egalitarian. Um, eating processed cheese doesn't make you hierarchical. Every person, every society is free to experiment and try out different values, try out different ways of doing things. But we are always engaged in this kind of competitive process with everybody else and every other society. And I would say that the process, the, the evolution of values, works in many ways very like biological evolution. This is the theme I talked about in, in the first of the lectures that I gave here. Um, that for each kind of society, it's a bit like you know, uh, talking about each different species of animals. Each species of animals is a kind of equilibrium set of values. And the closer you hew to that set of values, values, the more likely it is that you will pass your genes on to the next generation. Each society has evolved culturally toward an equilibrium set of values. Each kind of society, each of these, these categories I've been talking about, through constant experiments, constant competition, the closer a society comes to the ideas, the, the evaluation of equality that works best for that kind of society, the better it's going to do in the competition with other societies. The ones that make serious misjudgments, like the Soviet Union, they go out of business.
So the conclusion I would reach from this um, is that each age, um, each age has a right level of equality. Um, and this, I think, this is one of the, the implications of the long-term history. And what, what I mean by that, not saying that um, you know, it's not, not sort of morally right, but there's a sort of factually right level of inequality in, in each kind of society. Um, shaped, uh, shaped by the environment that people live in, driven primarily by the amount of energy coursing through that society. And so, like, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a product of fossil fuel societies. I grew up in the, the stinky, dirty town. I showed you a picture of a moment ago. Now live in, in California. Product of fossil fuel societies. I'm a very fossil fuel kind of guy. Um, doesn't mean I'm morally better than farmers or foragers who have very different valuations of what fairness means. Just means I've got the kind of values that work best in the kind of society that I live in. If I were transported to a farming society, here I am being transported back to Greece in the 6th century BC. Oh, I see I'm actually wearing the same clothes as I did in that picture. That was a terrible fashion error. Um, so if I'd been born in the farming society, if I'd grown up in one of these societies, I would have had farming values. I would have thought that the way that these people thought. If I were now time-traveled back to them, I would have different values from them. Um, my values would not suddenly become morally wrong because I'm now in 6th century BC Greece. But they would be factually wrong. I would have a lot of problems if I carried on acting there the way that I act here. And so too, I'd say, with characters like Mr. George, the, the Greek guy I mentioned at the beginning of this story. He lived in a world that was vanishing. His farming world was going away. His values were factually wrong. They were being driven out by new sets of values. So my argument, my core point, each age has a right amount of inequality. And what I mean by that, it's possible for a society to be too unequal but it's also possible for societies to not be unequal enough. And this, I find, is something that annoys a lot of people. So um, let me explain what I mean by that. It's possible, I think, sometimes for us to measure the right amount of inequality quite precisely. And particularly um, something that's been studied a lot, income inequality. Uh, this is something we can measure quite precisely. And I think we can come up with some very precise numbers about what's the right level of income inequality for different kinds of societies. And that's what we're looking at um, in this graph here. So again, three columns, foraging, farming, fossil fuels over at the end. Um, three uh, vertical lines representing ranges of, of inequality. Um, and then on the vertical scale, what we've got is income inequality measured on an index that uh, economists use a lot called the Gini coefficient. And I'm sure many of you will be familiar with this, but basically it's, it's a way of measuring um, inequality, unevenness in distribution. You can use it for anything. It runs on a scale from zero uh, up, to, up to one. And zero means, like, say, um, if we pooled the income of everybody in this room and then shared it out absolutely equally uh, between everybody, so we've all got exactly the same amount, we would have a Gini score of zero in this room. If instead we pulled all the income in this room and gave it to me, um, which we could try that, uh, if, we, if we did that, we'd have a Gini score of one. You actually can't have a Gini score of one. If some, one person's got everything, everybody else is dead. You can't actually get to one. But the closer you get to one, the more unequal your society is. Um, so what we see um, here is that the ranges of uh, income inequality recorded in different societies, actually the fossil fuel ones, uh, that is not all fossil fuel societies, uh, I just made a mistake on this graph, this, that is the societies of the Organization of Economic um, Cooperation and Development, basically a club of rich countries, that's their range. If we did all fossil fuel societies, the top end of the bar would go slightly above the 0.5 level. Um, 
Among foraging societies, the, the midpoint in the range of distributions of income inequality is about 0.25 on the Gini scale. Among farming societies, it's about 0.48, almost twice as high. Among fossil fuel OECD societies, it's, among, it's around 0.30. They range actually from 0.25 to 0.35. That, I would say, is the right amount of inequality for these societies to have. And the reason I say that is that most people, in fact, agree with me, even if they, they think they don't. They do. Um, back in the 1970s, um, the OECD countries, actually this is just well, a similar, a different graph showing you basically the same thing. Here, there's just bar column, columns showing you, measuring up to the midpoint uh, of the, the uh, average level of inequality in the different kinds of societies, but with two columns for OECD fossil fuel countries over on the, the right there. The uh, one that goes up to 0.4 is pre-tax and pre-government redistribution, um, which is 0.4. Then after tax and redistribution of other kinds, um, it, 0.26 was the average in the 1970s. In the 1970s, a number of OECD countries drove the Gini score for income inequality down below 0.25. These countries um, all experience very serious economic problems, and their voters regularly elected right-wing governments, this is the, the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, right-wing governments that pledged to reverse this, to open up the economy so that the rich could become richer. Voters chose to elect and re-elect governments that would do this. Seems to me that is evidence that most people felt something was seriously wrong. Since 2000, several of the OECD countries have seen their Gini scores for income inequality go up above 0.35, up um, above what I would say is the right level of inequality for, uh, for fossil fuel societies. We've seen economic problems multiplying since 2000. We've seen electorates lean toward people like Bernie Sanders in the US, your friend Jeremy Corbyn here, and sometimes even worse. Now, that is a scary picture, so I'll move on as quickly as possible uh, to the next one. Um, yeah, he's probably sweeping the primaries as we speak. Um, so, okay, the shape of inequality to come. The, the so what question here. So, so what? Uh, what? What can we learn from um, this long-term history? Do, do these long-term trends, that I, I think we can identify, do they tell us anything about where things might go next? And I think the answer is yes. Um, and I'm just going to say a few words about a couple of things. One very quickly, then one uh, spend a couple more minutes on it. What, what, one thing I think this teaches us, we, we look at the, the 20th century, so this great struggle within fossil fuel economies over the best, most efficient way to organize fossil fuel societies. And by the 1990s, it seemed that the liberal version, the capitalist version, had decisively won these struggles. Now, in the 21st century, one of the big questions is, Will China liberalize as it becomes richer and become more like Western societies, or will the rest of the world become more like China as China gets richer? This is one of the big questions for people in international relations. Now, it seems to me that the obvious implication of the story I've been telling is that other things being equal, China must liberalize to carry on becoming richer which is not surprising, I think. It is basically what happens around the rest of it, uh, East Asia, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore. 
all of them, 50 years ago, were pretty nasty one-party states. Um, now, they're not. At least they're nowhere near as nasty as they used to be. Um, all of them liberalized in order to continue the their, their increasing wealth. Uh, all of them became more like Western democratic societies. And I suspect this has got a lot to do with what we're seeing going on in China at the moment, with the, 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 particularly the anti-corruption campaign that Xi Jinping is running. And they're wrestling with this issue. However, having said that, I think that, that's one conclusion we can draw from this story. But having said that, I mean, I said other things being equal. One of the big lessons you learn as a historian is that other things are never equal. You change one thing, everything else has to change around it. Um, you know, our, our own societies, our modern societies, for, for good as well as for ill, have been shaped by fossil fuels. None of what we now enjoy would be possible without fossil fuels. But we can't go on doing what we've been doing for the last 200 years, very obviously. We've, we've pumped 100 billion tons of carbon into the atmosphere since 1750. And a quarter of that we did since 2005. I mean, this cannot go on. We have poisoned the air and the oceans, and this cannot go on. Now, um, a new revolution in energy capture is already underway. We, we don't know how it's going to end, but it's underway. It's coupled, as with all the earlier revolutions in energy capture, it's coupled with a struggle over the best ways to organize post-fossil fuel societies, um, driven by linked breakthroughs and revolutions in genetics, nanotechnology, robotics, computing, all of these things are bundled together. Our societies are changing now faster than they have ever changed before in the history of humanity. There's much argument over where they're going, but I want to spend just the last couple of minutes talking about one of the ideas about where things might be going, um, which I, I think is one way in which thinking about the long term uh, can be rather useful. Uh, there's an idea out there, which again I'm sure many of you have heard of, you hear a lot about it in Silicon Valley where, where Stanford is, an idea out there, Moore's Law, which again I'm sure many of you know of, um, dreamed up by Gordon Moore, the chairman of Intel back in the mid-1960s. And uh, Gordon Moore looked at the history of computing and said, it seems to me that roughly every 18 months the power of computers doubles and the cost of computing falls by a half. He said, what will happen if these exponential trends continue out into the future? He speculated a bit about where we might be in the 1980s if this happened. And it turns out, of course, this does happen. This carries on through the 1980s. Um, computing power keeps increasing. Um, uh, the costs keep halving. Society is transformed by the, 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 the abundant, cheap computing power. Now, another guy who I'm sure many of you will have heard of, Ray Kurzweil, who's now the director of engineering at Google. Ray Kurzweil, a few years ago, 2005, drew a famous graph asking what will happen if we project Moore's law further forward into the future, the exponential um, doubling in computer power for a halving of the cost of computing. And th this is the, the graph that he drew. What we got here is um, time across the bottom from 1990 out to 2030, I think it has. And then... Uh, I have actually no idea what the vertical scale means, but it's something about the power of computers. Like, the, the higher you go, the, the whatever, the, they get better. Um, and then uh, we've got different supercomputers are the named dots on the line, and the dotted lines here are the, the range, the sort of trend range, if the exponential growths continue in these things. Now, the reason I'm showing you this, what, what got Kurzweil excited about this, he said the exponential growth in the power of supercomputers. Um, this can be more or less paralleled by exponential increases in the power of brain scanning imagery. 
Now, the reason he's excited about this is that, uh, as again, I'm sure um, most people are aware at this point, uh, your mind, you know, what you do when you think about things, it's basically a lot of electrical signals flashing around between trillions of neurons in your brain. These electrical signals, they are what make you who you are. They are your mind. They are where you, your memories are stored in these electrical signals. Everything that makes your personality what it is, is stored in these electrical signals. Now, says Ray Kurzweil, if we project out the exponential increase in the power of brain scanning technology, um, by the 2020s, we will have the scanning power to produce a neuron-by-neuron -neuron scan of your brain. Now, what that means, and this is where people sort of part, start parting company with Kurzweil, but what that means, Kurzweil thinks, is that there will now be two of you. One is a nasty, sloppy, wet, carbon-based version sitting in this room, decaying before my eyes. The other one is a pristine, eternal, but actually it won't be silicon-based, something else-based, um, something else-based version that will last forever and ever. But there's two of you. Even better news, says Kurzweil. By the 2020s, we will have supercomputers so powerful, we can mount this scan of you onto the computer and run it in real time. There really will be two of you out there. And actually, in case you're wondering, I mean, this graph trickles off. It was published a few years ago before where we are now. We are, in fact, more or less still in the, the right band. We're drifted down toward the bottom end of the band. But in 2014, um, the Fujitsu K supercomputer in Kobe was the, the biggest one unveiled at that point. That ran a, a simulation of a, of a human mind. It was a, a limited simulation in that it simulated 1% of a neural network, and it took 40 minutes to do what your brain can do in one second. So pretty limited. But we are within the, the band, um, and several of the computer guys said, if this continues 10 more years, we'll have one that can do your brain at full speed. Now, this is an extraordinary thing, but it gets weirder. If we project the trends out to the 2040s, says Kurzweil, by that point, we will have computers powerful enough to mount scans of the brains of every human being on the planet. We'll be able to merge them together in the great database in the sky, turn humanity into a single superorganism with thinking power trillions of times greater than that of all the people who live in the world today. Now, Many people think this is a little crazed, um, and, uh, including many neuroscientists. Many people think this is a little crazed. But there is, so far as I've been able to make out, almost no argument about neuro, among neuroscientists over the point that this is the direction in which things are going, even if the Kurzweil vision is mad. This is the direction in which things are going. And the obvious question, I think, for the topic I'm talking about tonight is, well, what is inequality even going to be? when we're all merged in the great database in the sky? Will it even mean anything to talk about inequality in a world like that? I mean, if we were to, say, come back in 50 or 100 years' time and put this chart up again, we've now got to have a fourth column over there, post-fossil fuelers. Um, are these things even going to mean anything? Probably not, if the Kurzweil vision of the future is correct. I mean, if this vision of the future is correct, we can confidently predict that inequality will simply cease to matter within the next hundred years. 
Unless, of course, that's not what happens. Um, what if, and there's many other scenarios out there, what if, say some people, what if some of us upload to the great database in the sky faster than others? What if the rich upload their brains first and the rich become post-human and the rest of us don't? There's a famous um, story about F. Scott Fitzgerald. I'm sure you will all have heard this one. At some party in the 1930s, and he comes up, you know, it's his job to say witty things. He comes up with this line, he says, oh, yes, the rich are different from us. And Ernest Hemingway is supposed to have said, yes, they have more money. Uh, in this vision of the future, the rich really are different from us. Um, this vision of the future, the rich have become literally superhuman. I mean, if it's possible to connect your mind to all knowledge in the world and access that for some people, access all of that, the rich perhaps really do become different from the rest of us. And how are we going to feel about hierarchy when some people really are superhuman? Ancient Egyptians thought King Tut was a god. What are we going to do when some people basically are gods? So, okay, what do we learn from this long-term history? Well, I think one thing we learn, we are not capuchin monkeys. This is what we learn. Uh, because biological evolution gave us these, these really big brains I talked about in a couple of the earlier lectures. The big brains that made us capable of cultural evolution as well as biological evolution. Fairness, I suggested, fairness is a biologically evolved human value. All human beings, except for sociopaths, have a sense of fairness. It's a primate value as well. We're not the only species that has a sense of fairness. But humans are, have been able to reinterpret fairness. As their environment has changed, they've reinterpreted what fairness means. And changes in energy capture, I've been suggesting, have been the biggest driver of these changes in what fairness means. I think that long-term history suggests we're on the verge of the biggest change in this environment we live in in the last 100,000 years. Now, I talk, talked in all of the lectures I've done here about what long-term history can teach. Um, I, I would suggest one of the teachers about where things might go next. I, I would suggest tonight that one of the biggest things it suggests is that we are now entering the most important change in what it means to be human since modern humans evolved, evolved 100,000 or so years ago. Now, back in 1982, uh, Mr. George's sense of hierarchy seemed very out of date to anybody from the fossil fuel world. But if energy capture continues soaring up the way that it's been doing, up to a million kilocalories per person per day, the post-humans of 2082 and their values might be as different from us today as we are from Neanderthals. And I think if you want a lesson to draw from long-term history, that's the one. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you. So I, I don't think I undersold or, or oversold rather uh, your, um, your ability to draw out long timelines and, and uh, think about uh, the interesting implications. So I think we will open it up for, for um, questions here. There's someone very eager in the back. Please introduce yourself and... Hi, I'm Ramin. We bumped into Starbucks one hour ago. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, I'm... I'm an 
interested in the variation across societies in each stage. You showed that there are still meaningful variations. Even in our fossil age, we still see meaningful differences in income inequality between a Latin American country and, you know, North American. Uh, so uh, this suggests other things do matter, you know, like policies, ideas, choices. I'm kind of curious, how would you explain the wide variation in inequality at each stages? Um, so so the, uh, you, you asked me, how, how would I explain the wide variety in inequality between states? Across, yes, across yeah, between states. states. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is, uh, uh, I guess I'm uh, going to repeat now a point I've made in response to questions of some of the earlier lecturers. Um, you know, I, obviously, I'm I, dealing here with the whole of human history, like 50 minutes or so, and, you know, all people who ever lived in one table, um, fairly broad brushstroke stuff. And I find uh, that the, the sort of explanations I've been offering in these lectures, they work best. The, the higher you go up the abstraction hierarchy, the, the better they work. The more you go down into short periods of time in particular places, the more that other factors start to come into it. And, and again, I think you know, this is something where historians, I think, can learn quite a lot from biological evolutionists. And I say, say if you're a biologist studying the, the evolution of bunny rabbits or whatever, um, you, know, you can say, oh, these are the kinds of behavior we expect from bunny rabbits. So these are the sort of value... I actually don't... I'm making this up now. I have no idea if this is what they say. But the kind of values we expect bunny rabbits to show... Which I'm sure they say this. The kind of values we expect bunny rabbits to show... But that doesn't mean that any particular bunny rabbit is going to behave, uh, sort of, you know, follow the equilibrium path for bunny rabbits. And any bunny rabbit is free to do something really stupid and get eaten by a fox. And I say, you know, people are just the same. You know, we are all totally free. You know, I can decide to be a hunter-gatherer right now and go out there and start hunting and gathering out on Old Witch or something. You know, I'm going to last about five minutes. You know, I have done now the first thing about hunting and gathering. So you know, common sense tells me not to do that and to stick with this day job. And you know, different countries around the world, obviously they've all got their own traditions and cultures and values, you know, particular historical details that push them off in the directions that they go in. And because it's a commonplace, uh, at least among the, the economists I know, they like to be very confident that they know the answers to all problems. I'm, I'm sure you're a much more broad-minded economist than this. They know the answers to all problems. They can go off, jet off first class to any capital city in the world and tell their leaders what they should be doing to solve all their economic problems. Then lo and behold, of course, the leaders ignore everything they said. Um, because there are very good reasons why, if you're, if you're Vladimir Putin, there are a number of reasons why you might might choose to ignore the advice you get from McKinsey and co. Um, there are you know, particular cultural and historical reasons. And um, I have a, a good friend at Stanford, Steve Haber, who's an expert on inequality in Latin America. And so I've heard a great deal from Steve about the roots of Latin American inequality. And it seems like there are strong, uh, partly rooted in colonialism, a lot of other things too. But yeah, there's nothing to make any country, any government follow the wisest strategy in terms of, you know, defined in terms of uh, uh, the competition with the, the societies around them. Nothing to make any of them do this, except that um, the, uh, it seems to me the further you diverge away from this sort of equilibrium path, the less likely in the long run uh, you are to turn out to be successful. So, yes, yeah, so a rather rambling answer, but um, that's what I think. Please. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor. I, I was trying to think of examples could during you, please, your sorry, talk. Could you oh. please introduce yourself? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. My name is Paul. 
<laughs> How do you do? Um, thinking, trying to think of examples, and the example I came up with was the, uh, the Putney debates mm -hmm. in 1647 in, a, in an agricultural, very hierarchical society, and then suddenly there's this, this war uh, with uh, Cromwell's army and the levelers who are debating, really, egalitarianism. And they all shared an assumption, didn't they, in not only in a divinity, but that they knew this divinity's will through the biblical injunction of, of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, uh, a rule of reciprocity. Um, now, today, I, I, it's fair to say that that assumption, the divine assumption, is no longer universal, but, but we do still cling to the golden rule and ascribe it to empathy. Uh, with, with fellow, fellow creatures, uh, you seem to suggest, uh, and, and I'm going to ask you to speculate wildly if you don't mind, but you did seem to be suggesting then that um, as we become more computer-assisted and, and robots do more of our work and we get more detached, that maybe empathy is going to evolve out of our descendants and uh, they, they just will not have that kind of fellow feeling. Is that what you were, were saying? Yeah, well, that's a, a great question. Um, yeah, I, must say, I, I, I love the Putney debates. I, I used to, when I taught at the University of Chicago, I taught in their Western Civ program. This was one of the texts um, we would read. And, and I have just a, a quick digression before I get to come to your question. I mean, one of the really interesting things with the Putney debates is, of course, that this is one of the first places we see people saying that you know, all men are equal. Um, and that, you know, you, regardless of who you are, the, the, the least he in England is, is whatever, is the greatest he or something. I'm sure you know better than I do what they actually said. But, um, this idea that you know, all men are equal. And this is in a decidedly pre-industrial revolution society. And I think for, when, when I was writing my, my book, you know, this is one of the, for me, one, one of the key test cases was these societies like 17th and 18th century Northwest Europe, um, North American colonies, where people are clearly um, moving in the direction of what I call fossil fuel values, even before fossil fuels become a, a major component of how the society runs. And yeah, so I, I I should say, when I talk about foragers, farmers, and fossil fuels, this is a, a broad brushstroke simplifying thing. Basically, it's sort of you know, how much energy you're, you're capturing tends to drive your attitudes on these things. So you do get transitional cases like 17th century England. But having said that, the empathy thing, yeah, this is really interesting. And this is something I, I haven't given anywhere near as much thought to as it deserves. And I... Um, I uh, was reading a little bit about it, though, in um, Stephen Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, when he's talking about uh, the decline of violence in societies in the last 500 years. And one of the things he talks about is the, the rise of empathy. And he puts this down in Western European societies, he puts this down to the, the takeoff of the novel in the 18th century, which makes it's easier for readers of novels to think about the world through other people's eyes, which I must say I find wildly implausible myself. But I mean, I think you know, there's a lot to suggest that there has been there have been changes in what empathy is like. That uh, empathy has become more and more important. Yeah, what, what would happen to empathy if the sort of things uh, I'm talking about actually come to pass? Um, I mean, I would my guess would be well, it's a, it depends. <laughs> it's a good answer for anyone speculating. Yeah, I mean, I think if the world moves toward a Ray Kurzweil world. I mean, everybody bonded in the great database in the sky. Then, I mean, I guess in a way you could say empathy becomes total. There is no distinction really anymore between individual minds. Everybody's part of the, the, great, uh, the great consciousness in the sky. If it goes in the um, direction of uh, 
uh, actually in the seminar, my seminar this afternoon, we were talking about this movie Transcendence. Did you see Transcendence? Uh, I, I'm the only person in the world who thinks this is a great movie. Um, but it's where, um, it's, it's Brad Pitt, isn't it? Brad, Brad Pitt merges his mind with a computer and becomes a superhuman. And if we go in that direction, then it will, I think it'll be hard for post-humans to empathize with regular humans. I think it will be as difficult as it is for us to empathize with other species of animals. We don't know what's going through their heads. I mean, I've lived with animals almost my whole life. I'm convinced I do know what's going through their heads, but we don't really. Um, the, the, maybe the post-humans will not understand what's going through the heads of biological humans like us. And empathy, yeah, in a sense, perhaps will disappear. That's cheerful. <laughs> So thank you very much. Um, my name is Dorian. I'm a master student here in philosophy of the social sciences, and I'm uh, particularly not a big fan of evolutionary explanations of human values. So you've been talking a lot about um, fairness, and I'm very much wondering what the actual content of this fairness that is evolutionarily wired into our brain is like. If it is compatible with societies that are so massively unfair as feudal societies, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, this is something I, I thought about a, a little bit in the in my book, about a, a little bit in um, foragers, farmers, and fossil fuels. Because uh, um, you know, one, as I'm sure you're aware, one, one of the most influential ideas about fairness is the, the, the level of theories that John Rawls, the famous philosopher, developed in his theory of justice. And um, I'm sure I won't do justice to, to Rawls' idea of justice, but he, he suggested that um, the ideal society, the just society, would be the one that you would imagine if you were behind what he called a veil of ignorance, and you're told you're going to be born into this society, but you have no idea what the society, you know, no idea who you're going to be when you enter into this society. And so Rawls said, what would people make up as the ideal society, um, the most fair and just society, if they were told they have no idea whether they're going to be tall or short, fat or thin, male or female, rich or poor, clever or stupid, you know, Michael Jordan or me, you, know, you just have no idea what you're going to be. And he said the society, he argued that the society we would create would be the one that um, gave kind of most advantages possible to the least advantaged member, if we had no idea which member of the society we were going to be. Um, and, that, and he then, from that, moved on to produce really quite specific recommendations for how you would create this society. Now, I, I think, I mean, even though he's the most famous philosopher of the late 20th century, I think this is totally stupid. Um, I don't think that's what uh, would be like at all, because I, mean, I think what I, I like tend to feel what Rawls didn't think about is that if you're behind a veil of ignorance, you don't know whether you're going to be born into a society powered by fossil fuels, which is what I think he overwhelmingly assumed, or one powered by farming or one that's a foraging society. If you took Rawls's ideal society and dropped it down in Europe in AD 1000, they'd all be dead in a couple of years. I mean, it's, it's simply, it was an insane way, I would say, to think about ideal societies and what fairness means. And the reason I'm saying that, I mean, I, I suspect that the biologically evolved sort of core value of fairness is a very, very simple kind of thing, that um, I should be treated right, and everybody should be treated right. Uh, and what it, it, the question is, what does it mean to say somebody should be treated right? 
capuchin monkeys think that you getting a cherry tomato when I get a green pepper, this is not treating me right. This is treating me wrong. You're undervaluing me. Um, you know, we obviously have rather more complicated ideas of this. Um, that, uh, it seems to me from the written evidence that we've got that you know, in medieval feudal societies, there is a widespread sense that this, is a fair, uh, that this can be a fair and just society. There's often, of course, almost always a society, a sense that it's not, in fact, a fair and just society. There are things that are wrong with it. But they're not running around saying it all has to turn into Denmark or something. They're running around saying if the, if the king knew what the local aristocrats were doing, he would stop them from being so wicked. Like the Russians had this saying, the Tsar is good, but the boyars are bad. The local aristocracy is always the enemy. Usually the God-given king is the hero. So I, mean, I, I tend to feel that we are actually extraordinarily flexible in uh, the, ways, the range of ways we can interpret this core value. Paul Alexander, um, if we suspend for one moment the brain uploading to the cloud in the next 10, 15 years, um, then another possible driver for inequality uh, over the next generation will be robotics and technology, mm -hmm. and the possibility for the first time in history that there will be mass unemployment associated with that, which is a new way of driving inequality. Mm -hmm. How have you incorporated that into your analysis? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, if... I knew the answers to these questions. I, I would be a very rich man myself. <laughs> well, wouldn't need to be here in the first place. But yeah, I think um, we, we can, see, even if we, we, we just don't know how these things are going to play out, obviously. But I think we can see some broad outlines of the, the range of possibilities out there. And, um, you know, I mean, as you, you will have gathered, you know, I like to think about the things happening in our world through the lens of long-term history and how similar things have played out before. And I think one thing you see over and over again, the long run of history, um, is that you know, big innovations, you know, things like agricultural revolution, industrial revolution, robotics revolution, uh, these big things always begin in one specific time and place, one specific set of people, or the early adopters, the, the, the main people creating these things. And I think you tend to see two things happening over and over again. One is that enormous advantages accrue to the early adopters of these things. I say, um, with the beginning of farming, about 10, 12,000 years ago, uh, the, the populations in what's now the Middle East that begin farming, they, they multiply rapidly, their towns get bigger, they get more sophisticated and complex, better at fighting, and they spread out. They take land away from people who are not farmers. They, they capitalise on this uh, and do very, very well out of the fact that they're early adopters. And the same with the Industrial Revolution. You know, it begins basically in Britain. The British have the steamships and the guns and all these other good, great things. And they go out and they beat up the rest of the planet. And, and, and Britain you know, becomes top of the global pile for a while. Um, and th this is the fact, I think this is repeated over and over again. But there's also the second pattern that um, it's like the advantages and the mastery of the new innovations tends to sort of leak outward. And so uh, while you're getting the original farming populations expanding and taking over the lands of other people, you're also getting the people who were not originally farmers emulating, competing with the first farmers, adopting farming themselves, and sort of, uh, catching up with the farmers, basically. I think you have the same kind of thing with the Industrial Revolution in the late 20th century. You get indigenous industrial revolutions going on all over the world. And I suspect the same is going to happen with the 20th century revolutions. Um, but the question, I think, is always, you know, you, you, it's like this, 
you're rerunning the same script, but it's different every time. Have we now reached a point where um, the, the speed and the scale of the changes caused by some of the new technologies are going to be so enormous that the early adopters are able to uh, establish a basically unchallengeable position of, of dominance? And I think, I would say, you know, this is the big question about the, the social consequences of, uh, of some of the new technologies. You know, is it going to be the sort of the cheerful, smiley face Silicon Valley version of the future where everybody gets to take advantage of these things? Or is it going to be the dark vision, um, like a lot of people said about the Industrial Revolution, where there's going to be mass unemployment, um, wages, income for the bulk of the population is going to be driven down towards starvation level, and a tiny elite is going to pull away? And again, the reason I say you know, obviously nobody knows the answer is I think we get... Um, we get the, the happy version of the future if the new technologies, which obviously are destroying jobs, if they simultaneously create more jobs of a higher level than the ones they're destroying, which is, you know, ultimately is what the Industrial Revolution did do, then we get the happy version. If they don't, then we get the really miserable version. Um, and I think you know, that, that, in a way, I think that's what a lot of the current um, social political debates are about. You know, where do we think that... Sort of, unleashing technology, unleashing free trade, where do we think these are going to take us? Do we think they're going to take us toward a, a world which gets progressively flatter and more even, or are they going to take us toward a world that is progressively more and more hierarchical? And, of course, the trend in the last 40 years has been toward the more hierarchical world. Thank you. Uh, Benjamin Dabby, I wondered if you could say a little more on... Uh, education and state-sponsored education mm -hmm. in terms of how that fits into the, the theory that you've explained and perhaps on uh, following on from what you were just saying, your, your predictions for the future. Um, today the, the news was that all um, schools the government hopes to turn into academies and many governments in this country um, promise that this is going to make our society fairer. So I wonder what you thought. Mm. Yeah, great question. And uh, when I say great question, it usually means this is one I've got something I want to say uh, about. Um, so, yeah, great question. I think that um, you, you do see a very, uh, at least the, the sort of coarse grain, again, uh, very clear patterns in the, the l super long-term history of education. That in foraging societies, um, you know, the young are educated by the small group that they live with, primarily by, but not exclusively by their parents. In farming societies, that remains the case for most of the young uh, the peasant families, um, but a small group begins to get educated to a much higher level, and you end up with guys like Confucius and Plato and, and these sorts of characters, uh, who, of course, you, you, you don't have people of that kind in foraging societies, uh, different people, but not of that kind. In fossil fuel societies, pretty much all fossil fuel societies moved toward mass education in the 19th and 20th centuries because you, I mean, again, I'd say it's one of these sort of equilibrium path things. If you don't do that, you are not going to survive very well in a world of other societies that are doing that. And so Afghanistan, I mean, Af you know, there's no, no countries in the world today that are are really farming societies anymore. All of them have shifted over toward fossil fuel economies to a greater or lesser extent. Um, gosh, I looked at the numbers on this just yesterday, but I've forgotten them. But there's only a tiny number of countries left in the world where farming produces more than half of the GDP. So we're, we pretty much all live in fossil fuel societies now. But some of them, like Afghanistan, say that large sections of the population should not have access to education. 
This, on the whole, is not going very well for those countries. So I think that clearly the fossil fuel world is one that demands high levels of mass education. Um, and so in a sense, and certainly in one sense, I think, yes, you can definitely say that um, increasing education is one of the most important tools, uh, at least of equality in the sense of equality of opportunity, opening up possibilities for more and more people to, to rise and compete at the top levels of society. Because the, the more we move toward a knowledge-based economy, the more it creates potential for new kinds of inequalities. So I, mean, I, I tend to think all of the, these things, um, you know, there, there's pluses and minuses with any kind of strategy, short-term strategy that you come up with. There's going to, going to be gains and there's going to be costs. And how you define what counts as a gain in the cost is going to depend very much on your larger view of how the society should develop. So you know, once again, I, mean, I, I don't come here offering you know, specific recommendations for um, what governments should do in the next five years with their education policy, but I think we can see some broad trends and what, potentially what the consequences of different kinds of choices might be. Hi, thank you. Um, my name is Nick James. We've got a question about um, generational inequality. Um, it's not something you've touched on specifically, but I wonder, I wonder in the context of your post-fossil fuel scenario whether that's going to be a, a big part of it because you're potentially able to enhance your, yourself if you're still living in your physical body or you're able to upload a copy or archive yourself to some cloud. In which case, <laughs> if you can effectively live forever then that's going to be incredible inequality for people who come along after you. Yeah, yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing to start thinking about. Because, uh, and again, this sort of long story from the foragers to the farmers to the fossil fuels, I mean, one of the big things it's transformed, along with gender, wealth, politics, age, age relations being one of the big things that's been transformed. Um, and, you know, in, in foraging societies, some anthropologists will say you know, there's sort of almost no such thing as childhood. I mean, very, very different from the, the societies that we live in now. And, of course, one of the big transformations over the last few hundred years has been um, what, oh gosh, what is the expression the, uh, the demographers use? It's something about the rectangularizing of age structures. That in your pre-modern societies, um, you know, if you, you, if you could be time-traveled back a thousand years, you, you would be surrounded anywhere in the world you went. You'd be surrounded by young people. You would see some old people, you know, some even as old as me. Uh, you know, some people live into their 70s, some people live into their 80s, but very, very few compared to the modern world. And, um, uh, in most pre-modern societies, uh, you've got at least a one in three chance of being dead by your second birthday, a massive infant mortality. And so there's sort of... Things that we often worry about today with you know, increasing numbers of elderly dependents to, to care for, this is a very, very modern problem. Um, and uh, again, you know, you'd start talking about where things might go in the future. There's a lot of different ideas out there, and I think it's not entirely clear which of them is the stronger. Like, so um, you know, one thing that people worry about very much is in much of Europe, Japan, a number of other places, the number of um, the, the societies are, are aging rapidly, the average age going up, getting a lower and lower ratio of workers to dependents, all kinds of problems.
problems likely to multiply if this goes on. Some people, though, point to the, some of the technological changes going on, going on and say, ah, robotics is the answer. Um, because we can augment, like in the old days, uh, you know, if you wanted to enjoy, say, say you know, back, back 50 years ago, in the, 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 the golden age of social security and programs like that, you have a very high ratio of workers to, to, to retired people. You can pay for these programs out of current payments. It's all great. Nobody has to worry about anything, at least in theory. Um, maybe we can recreate that because we just now have thousands and thousands of robotic workers to augment the, the young human workers. So it's sort of smiley face prediction on the future. The even smileyer face one is the one where, of course, age and stuff like that really ceases to mean very much at all. I mean, the, the more you go toward the Ray Kurzweil vision of the world, um, the less something like biological aging matters. And of course, you say, well, then well, what happens to the new people coming up? Well, aren't going to be any. Um, that um, one of the many things that have changed, and this is something that your, your former director of the LSE, Anthony Giddens, wrote a lot about, nature of sex and the family. Um, sex has changed out of all recognition over the last last couple of generations. Um, sex is so much less about reproduction than it ever was in the past. Um, in many farming societies, they, they struggle to maintain a stable population, to have enough babies to keep the population stable. Same with foraging societies. Um, sex is about reproduction. It's fun as well, but it's about reproduction. That is no longer true. Many, many countries have birth rates below the replacement level. And um, one of the, the, the bits of the Kurzweil prediction of the future is that as we move away from our biology, or as we basically evolve into a post-human superorganism, the biological reproduction of individual human beings will matter less and less. If you've got a sort of conglomerate um, supermind living up in the cloud that goes on forever, um, sexual reproduction and the next generation will simply cease to be very important. And so that's we are one of the many peculiar possibilities I think lie out there in the next century. We have one more, two more questions. Yes. Hi, my name's Jane. Uh, you spoke about having an optimum level of inequality in various societies around income and wealth inequality. Do you think, does the same hold for the other two, for political and gender inequality? Yes. Um, the short answer, yes. Uh, like, I mean, say, you know, um, in fossil fuel societies, um, there were, while I was writing the book, I, I discovered there's so much information available on the web about uh, opinion research polls that, that have been done. Overwhelmingly around the world, um, people say gender equality is important, uh, political equality is important, wealth equality is important. Even in countries where we might think that in practice people are not um, worrying as much as they should about political equality or gender equality, um, God, again, I'm probably going to get this wrong. I always get the details wrong. I believe the society with the highest proportion of men saying that gender equality is a, a central, a core social problem. The country with the highest proportion of men saying that was the Palestinian Authority, which is it's slightly surprising. And I mean, the, the philosopher Amartya Sen, at least it surprised me anyway, uh, Amartya Sen, the philosopher, I mean, he had this famous article saying that democracy is now a human value. 
They, this is something that we human beings now all pretty much believe democracy is the right way for societies um, to be run. So I, I do think these things, are, they're very much of a package deal. Uh, that you know, On the whole, um, the farming age societies tended to say wealth inequality is perfectly natural, is right and proper, gender inequality the same, political inequality the same. The hunter-gatherer societies are overwhelmingly against inequalities of any kind. In our fossil fuel world, in, I mean, it's one of the weird things. I think in some ways we swung back much more toward the foragers than the farmers were, even though, of course, we're sort of post-farming societies. And I find that in, in my teaching that uh, when you ask students to read something like, um, this is a very famous book by Marjorie Shostak called Nisa, which is a kind of, uh, she put together like an autobiography of a Kung San hunter-gatherer woman. And the students identify very strongly with Nisa. She's like somebody, they, they understand what she says. Like they feel they could run into her on the quad and yeah, no big surprises here. Then you have to read something like The Song of Roland, the medieval French romance. It's like, what the, the epic, what the heck is this? These people come from another planet. Um, everybody's hacking everybody else to pieces all the time. Roland keeps stopping in the middle of a fight and breaking down and sobbing for minutes at a time. These people are aliens. Um, yeah, and I, think, I, mean, I think one of the really interesting things I found about doing this work was that it confounded a lot of, uh, the sort of rather simplistic expectations I had. Uh, I think if you'd been an alien from another planet, had come to the Earth 500 years ago, and you'd known about this history, uh, the, I think the obvious thing to predict is that the bigger societies get and the more energy they capture, the more unequal they become. And yet that clearly is not the case. It's a much more interesting, much more complicated story. But yeah, uh, long answer again. The short answer, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> One last question in the very back row. Would you be fair and go up to the balcony? Oh, sorry, I didn't. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> fairness is important. Sorry. So that, that, this is fairness. So, so um, I, I won't forget you down there. So please, up there. <laughs> Hanging over this, this discussion, from, from my perspective, has been um, Marx and Marxist history, because I think a lot of what you said has a lot of parallels with, with Marxist history, the view that basically man's relationship to the natural world has a huge influence over power relations in society and views of those power relations. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, one thing that's really been missing is a discussion of kind of a motor of conflict, you know, and, uh, in its crudest terms, mm -hmm. the idea of class struggle, there's been kind of idea, kind of, you've mentioned a kind of notions of cultural evolution, functionalist dimensions. You know, I, I feel there's just that, that dimension of, of, of conflict has been, conflict as a driver is kind of missing from a narrative which is actually a lot of parallels to a, to a Marxist view of history. Mm -hmm. Ian, can we take I'll collective take three oh, questions? Sure, yes, yes. Yeah. So we had one in the center here, someone. Hi. Um, my question, I guess, is a little more basic. Uh, I was wondering how you operate the translation between the idea that you can quantify or measure the amount of inequality across historical societies and the normative idea that there is a right amount of, of inequality um, across, across historical societies. So how do you operate that, um, that translation? And then final question, Donna. Hi, I'm Rachel. Um, you spoke about 
inequalities within a society being good, but what about global inequalities? Like, is it right that the West sets a standard for fairness when historically we've caused and like prolonged the most amount of wars? All righty, so three, three questions here, which I wrote them down, so I won't forget them um, by the time I get to the second one. So, so the first one was about Marx and, and struggle and class struggle uh, in this story. And um, I guess it's a, whether I'm being Marxist or not. And uh, I guess, I, yeah, I, I mean, when I was a graduate student in archaeology in the early 1980s, people never asked you if you were a Marxist. They asked you, what kind of Marxist are you? Everybody was a Marxist. Now, I find I mean, our graduate students now don't know the first thing about Marx. Uh, yeah, the world has changed a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, um, I mean, I certainly you wouldn't call what I do Marxist in any serious sense of that word. Although I think there are, uh, there, there's been ways in which a lot of Marx's ideas have entered the mainstream of, of social scientific thought. And, um, and of course there are ways, even though it sometimes upsets um, economists when you say this, in which kind of neoclassical e economics does have certain things in common with Marxism. And I think you know, struggle, even though I, I couched what I'm saying in terms of functionalism, which is often criticized for you know, erasing struggle and conflict from, from um, reconstructions of how societies work, I think you know, struggle and conflict are very obviously central parts of this story. And I think that, I mean, I think that's sort of uh, implicit in the analogy between thinking of history as, as, as being a process of cultural evolution and saying that this has a lot in common with biological evolution. Um, both stories, I think, are driven by a combination of, of conflict and cooperation, and the two are you know, tightly linked to each other. Um, I'd say that the, the way that these processes I've been claiming work, the, the, the way that they work is driven by conflict, by you know, people trying out different things. Some work, some don't. Some people flourish, some people, societies don't. So I guess I would say it is a very conflict-driven thing, um, even though I think it can be described also very much in functionalist terms. I think often the, maybe the distinction between the two is drawn too sharply, I, I like to think. But um, I, I don't know that satisfied you or not, but that's kind of what I think about these things. Then uh, the right amount of inequality um, and about yeah, me yeah, measuring and norms, that was it. Yeah, about, uh, how do I draw a line, I guess, make a connection between putting quantitative scores on the right amount of equality and normative discussions of the right amount of equality. And um, yeah, th this is something that uh, I was pushed on a little bit in the book that I wrote. This book um, was based on a series of lectures I gave at Princeton. And then, so there's uh, the chapters which kind of expanded versions of the lectures. And then the lectures, they have these respondents. It's a terrifying thing. They have these respondents, experts, who stand up and denounce the speaker after each lecture. And then to make it even more traumatic, in the book, the respondents each get to write a chapter of my book, which I thought was unfair, personally. But they get to write a chapter, and then I, of course, the really unfair thing, I get to respond to the respondents. But this was one of the points that one of the respondents did push on. And, um, think, and I guess I had not thought enough about this before she did it, which is, of course, why they have the responses. And um, I guess what I felt after reading her comments was that... Um, there's a lot of different things you can mean when you say the right amount of inequality. And I guess I tend to say what I'm talking about here is the right amount of inequality in a sort of 
well, what I could call the, the factual sense of this is that given that you are in a fossil fuel world, what is the kind of inequality that will make your fossil fuel society flourish and survive in a competitive conflict filled world of other fossil fuel societies. If you drift too far away from that, you're going to pay a heavy price for having done so. And I would say there is a sense in which you can say that's the right amount of inequality. Where we got into quarrels under the philosopher, the moral philosopher and I, were over um, whether there was a separate sort of rightness, which can be divorced altogether from actual human beings living in actual societies, capturing actual energy. And I think if you want to talk about that, you're just making stuff up. And she felt that if you don't want to talk about that, you're just a wicked person. So we, we had to sort of part company there. And then the final thing was about um, regional inequality, right? About some parts of the country, Western... The, the globe, global inequality. Uh, so my, my understanding was the question was, you know, why are some countries, is there some optimal idea of, of global inequality? So not within societies. Right, yeah, bet yeah, between countries. Yeah. yeah, this is a fascinating thing. Um, as, uh, I mean, I'm sure you're, many of you will know, I'm sure, the, the work of Thomas Piketty, the French economist, wrote um, this book, Capital in the 21st Century, sold like two million copies, made him extremely rich. Um, uh, and and you know, what Piketty was doing, you know, the, he was looking at the kind of growing inequality that's captured most of the headlines, which is within-country inequality, um, which you know, pretty much without exception, almost every country in the world has seen a major increase in this since the 1970s. And we're now getting up to these levels, um, you know, talking about this a little bit at the end, you know, above 0.35 in income inequality, where Piketty says that concentrations of wealth are becoming so great that they're beginning to endanger the meritocratic basis of democracy. And I think he's right about this. Um, he says much less, though, about the kind of inequality you asked about. And there's another economist who has not made as much money with, with his books, um, a guy named Branko Milanovic. And uh, what he pointed out is that, well, that's only one way to think about inequality. If you look at it globally between countries, the story is actually almost the opposite. That um, within country inequality uh, was high in the late 19th century, collapses in the 20th century. And a lot of economists talk about the Great Compression um, in the middle of the 20th century, which Piketty says is driven by the world wars that burn up these great accumulations of capital and force governments, uh, in order to get pop mass, mass support from their populations, to introduce much more redistributive, much more progressive tax systems. And this annihilates a lot of the 19th century levels of inequality, drives down um, within country inequality, and the gloomy Prediction, a gloomy conclusion Piketty reaches is that the only way to prevent the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer in capitalist societies is by having another world war. Actually, that's not quite the conclusion he reaches, but that's sort of what he seems to be implying. Um, um, but what Milanovic says is, well, that is almost a mirror image of the between-country inequality, because what happens with that is that if you go back to the early 19th century, between-country inequality is extremely low. Um, the, when the whole world is agricultural, the richest countries in the world are only very slightly richer than the poorest places. And I, again, I'll get his numbers wrong, I'm sure, but I think it's something like 0.2 on a, the Gini uh, coefficient for between-country inequality 200 years ago. Then, if you take the story forward, up till about 1950, 1960, the point at which within-country inequality is reaching these extremely low levels, 
um, between country inequality goes up and up and up. And I think it gets up to something like 0.8, really, really high levels. Because the West has industrialised and the rest have not. Uh, and so the West really pulls ahead in the 19th, first half of the 20th century. Then, since the 1960s, particularly since the 70s and 80s, as the Industrial Revolution spreads across the rest of the world, between country inequality levels off and starts going down again. So it's like almost exactly the opposite of the um, within-country trend. And Milanovic basically says, hey, be happy. Um, everybody, uh, the, the global inequality is declining. Asia, in particular, is getting richer. Many reasons to think the same kind of things will happen in Latin America and Africa. It's all going to turn out really, really well. And since this is the last question, this gives us the perfect opportunity to end on a happy note. It's all going to be fine. <laughs> Thank you.